This is the Food Download from Delancey Elam Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30am in the Delancey Elam Church building of the Banks and Simpsons in the Channel Islands of Guernsey. To contact us or find out more information about us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk. Just what we actually mean by these yeah. ter- these key yeah. terms, definitely. Yeah. yeah, good stuff. Anybody else? Okay, so loads of stuff fills our minds when we think about religion and science. And I think John's absolutely right to say that what's often portrayed to us um, in the media or wherever is that these things can sometimes be opposites. They're at war against each other, religion and science. Um, And actually, perhaps they're not at war. And perhaps actually there is a compatibility. Um, Oh, hello. Is this working? 
start. It's kind of like a little bit, just maybe it needs some warming up. Anyway, okay, so um, I posed this question for tonight, which was, has science disproved Christianity? And of course, I think we can all safely say no. Um, that's why we're here, and we, are still, we still have our Christian faith. So I think we're all agreed that no, it hasn't disproved Christianity. Um, and, uh, but I think maybe I want to just unpack it about the, maybe the different angles where we come from when we say no, it hasn't disproved Christianity. What do we really mean by that? Um, now, I'm only going to really touch, in a nutshell, because we've only got an hour or so, um, two kind of main areas, which is the origins of the universe and the origins of life. Now, there's loads of things that you could go into, dive into when you're talking about religion and science. We could go into the whole miracles things or healings and all, all that sort of thing, but you know, time doesn't permit us to go into all of that, that area. So I'm going to kind of try and touch on the origins of the universe and the origins of life in an hour, if we can even do that. But anyway, we'll have a go. Yeah? Um, so I think sometimes we get this question, do we have to choose, must we choose between thinking scientifically in a rational kind of reasoned way and belief in God. And it's like I said before, sometimes I think we're, there's this idea that we have to choose between them, whether to be scientifically minded when it comes to this particular area of the origins of the universe. Do we you know, go down the science route or do we go down the faith route? And what I want to suggest this evening is that the two are compatible, that religion and science don't have to stand um, at you know, at poles apart, that they can um, be together. And many, many scientists are religious and they hold their, their idea of science and religion together and I want to explore that. I mean, we do have some people who claim just that, that science and religion are at war. You know, they are two separate things. Richard Dawkins, I'm sure many of you have heard of him. He's the guy that wrote the God Delusion book um, and he is one person that would... Um, sort of quite an evangelical atheist and would say, you know, we have to get rid of religion. Now, that's a long quote there. Um, but he talks about religion being a cop-out, that what religious people do is, you know, they don't um, spend time actually working out the origins of the universe. And so they just say, oh, it's just God. And he thinks religion puts up this big barrier to actually discovering the truth. And he would rather do away with it um, that final thing there in the 21st century it's high time finally to send it packing to send religion packing so if you've ever heard any of Richard Dawkins um, you will know that he's very very you know zealous in his in his ideas yeah so he'd be one person saying no they don't they're not compatible but then you've got a, a lot of religious people also that would say actually that they might not be compatible um, and the other end of the spectrum to Richard Dawkins. So I want to really kind of see if we can um, show how these two things can work together, <coughs> that you can be both <coughs> religious, like us, have a belief in God, and that you can also believe in the scientific theories that are put forward um, for us. Uh, so have you got your Bibles with you? Did anyone bring their Bible? Okay, um, well, if you have, and you just have a little look at Genesis 1 and 2 for a moment, I don't want you to do a massive read-through, but just to sort of skim over, really. Um, you probably know these passages quite well. Does anybody need a little 
There's a little printout if you want to have a little look there, Genesis. Have you guys got something there to have a... Do you want to have a look at mine? There you go. Just quickly, and just over this, your partner's shoulder if you can, just quickly skim through um, and see Genesis 1 and 2. They're the creation accounts, okay? And um, I want you to see, just by going over them quickly get a flavour for perhaps the, what both are saying, the differences between those two accounts for a moment. Just do it really, just really quickly, just skim through and have a look quick at the gen- two chapters in Genesis. Okay, when you've had a look, just with the person next to you, just, just perhaps have a chat about those two accounts and just see what is there in there that you can see that's different between Genesis 1 and 2. Just have a little look. They are both accounts of creation, different accounts. Um, is there anything surprising there to you or anything there that's worthy of comment that you could just have a quick discussion about those two things? I think a lot of religions have this, they have a, a tradition, mm-hmm. a very strong tradition, and how they, how they practice their religion. But in the account in chapter one, it says that God said. Mm-hmm. And many religions don't claim that they have a, 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 a speaking yeah. personality. So what's quite cool to me is that God is now God is speaking. Yeah. It says, you know, so many comments involved in God and God said. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've just been looking we're just looking at Genesis cat at the moment. Um so just by skimming over those, like I said, I'm, tonight it, it might be a bit different for you because I'm not here to try and disprove the scientific theories. And sometimes we might have been to things where you've had people that have tried to say um, the strength of the religious belief over the scientific belief, and that's really not what I want to do. I want to, I want to see how they can fit together. And um, uh, our good friend there, um, Albert, said science without religion is lame, religion without science is blind. Um, and I think there's something in that, um, the compatibility. When you look at Genesis 1 and 2, what do you see that's different about them? Is there anything that jumps out? I don't know how much you've spent time looking at... Because sometimes I think in church life, we just kind of think we know the, the story of creation. And actually, when you look at the two accounts and two versions, they're quite different about how it, what happened. Yeah, I think the only thing I can see is the word because it says in the first one that the seeds can't find that. Yeah. The gathered water didn't yeah. seeds, but at that stage there hadn't really seemed to be any rain. No, that's right, yeah, so there's... But in the second yeah. one, then it says Lord God has not sent rain. Yeah. In the second one it says he hasn't sent rain. Mm. So streams came up from the earth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference there. Absolutely. I think there's a difference in some, um, in the in the order of how things are done. Genesis one is very ordered, isn't it? Day one, day two, day three, etc. Whereas it's not like that in this in the second chapter. It's different. And I think you've got the creation of man, and then you've got the creation of of um, trees springing up from there on the land um, <coughs> slight difference there the difference in the creation of humans of mankind whether it was created 
um, one than the other or together and etc. There's maybe slight differences there. I just want us to have a quick look at those because obviously that's where our starting point is when we're thinking about the origins of the universe and creation. And um, I mean, straight away, I think, when you look at something like this, you see that there's differences. And so we've got to say, well, what, what's going on here? What is this written? Uh, who, who was writing this? What were they writing for? What were they writing about? It wasn't written to us today, here in the 21st century. It was written right back then, so it was a different time, a different place, different people. Um, and I think the Genesis story, for me, the creation story, is far more than thinking that this is exactly what happened. Okay? Um, I don't think the Bible is supposed to be a scientific textbook about this is how it happened, this is what God did, um, necessarily. You can take it like that. You can read it just in that fashion. But I think for me, if you just read it in that fashion, you miss something of the beauty of the creation story, which is much more kind of the idea of God creating humankind for relationship and the beauty of that and the fact that he wanted to have a place for us to dwell that was really good and lovely and just wonderful for us and that he put his effort in for us for that. Um, and the fact that it shows that as, as humankind we are so um, we just do things wrong don't we all the time we, we easily mess up give in to temptation and you know disobey God and what he wants for our lives and yet he's willing to take us back and restore us and, and so there's something beautiful about this story in creation um, that goes far beyond just looking at it as a literal story of how it happened I want us to think um, and just have a little look at these different views. You may well have heard of these four, four views. Views that um, I, I would guess you know, you'll fit into one of these categories of how you view the creation story. Okay? Um, so, number one, you could fit into the camp of a, being a young earth creationist. Okay? Now, if you believe this, you believe the Genesis story um, to be true as it's written. Day one, this happened. Day two, that happened. Day three, that happened. And each day is a 24-hour period, a day like we understand it. And if you fit into this category, you would estimate that the earth was about 6,000 to 10,000 years old. Right? Now, science has said that the earth is about 4 billion years old. So it's quite a different perspective than the scientific understanding to hold this view. Okay, um, and so anything like the fossil evidence that scientists put forward, obviously using our um, our dating system that we have, uh, it dates much further back. How do you explain that if you're a young Earth creationist? You might want to use something like the flood, Noah's flood, because it preserved um, and it made things look um, older than they are. Now, Henry, um, sorry, in yeah. The earth was without form and void. Did it say on that before? No, absolutely. And darkness was on the face of the deep. Yeah. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Mm. And so we don't know how long the earth was there. Yeah. And we don't know, all that we know is that it was void. Yeah. Empty. Yeah. But then the light was created, etc. Yeah. So even though creation was only six to ten thousand years, we don't know how long the earth has been. Yeah. 
I mean, that's a good point because um, that's one of the things that is is thrown into the pot there about God's creation because um, when you read that Genesis, you have this idea that God is hovering above something and he uses whatever's there to create what he wants to create. Um, That's one particular view of looking at at how God created, that there was something there and God used it. Or did God create out of absolutely nothing? Was there nothing there? There was nothing. No time, no space, nothing. And we can't get our heads around nothing because we can't picture nothing. But there's the other view is there's nothing there and then God speaks things into existence and suddenly there is something. Um, so that's open to debate by different people about is there something there that God uses to create or does God create out of nothing? Um, or was that already was that created by God and then there was a time lapse and then he used that to create the earth? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But how how long is that? Hey, sorry. I said I just was posing the rhetorical question. But how long was that? You're absolutely right. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What again is trying to explain right so i mean what we're saying here sort of leads on to to the second view of creation really this is the first view that you could hold to okay so the earth is a young earth about six to ten thousand years old it doesn't that doesn't fit with scientific understanding however okay but you could hold to that view um and and the exact story of genesis as it's laid out just as it is okay um henry morris in the mid-1900s wrote a book and it's very influential especially in our evangelical thinking in our branch of Christianity about creation Um, so this is one view the second view is this which is old earth creationism and I think you you were sort of alluding to this just before that actually um, there's the belief in the Genesis creation account as as it stands that God created in that way but each day could have been, you know, the day is not a 24-hour period. The day is in the Bible, written there for us to have an understanding, but that could be millions of years, thousands of years. We don't know, okay? And that old earth creationist view then would fit much better with the scientific dating of the earth, okay? So you still hold to Genesis, you still hold to the fact that God created day one, day two, but that day could be however, however many years. We don't know. We don't know. Um, and so the, there's this, a great amount of time between creation of the universe. Scientists put the creation of the whole universe at about 13.7 billion years. Okay. Um, so that fits in. If you hold that stance of creation, you believe in Genesis, but the day is just a symbolic time period. That's another view. Yeah? Um, 
And then you've got the view uh, that we hear about a lot more uh, more recently about intelligent design. What is intelligent design? Well, this doesn't necessarily support the idea of a Judeo-Christian God like we have, but it does support the idea of some sort of intelligence, a being that is intelligent in some way. The earth, like Clive, you said before, is far too complex to have no intelligence behind it. And this goes back to this lovely little phrase called irreducible complexity. Okay? Now, in a nutshell, irreducible complexity is just the fact that if there is something, any being, that can't have evolved, then it would mean that an intelligent design would have to step in. So if there was something that along the evolutionary process, at some point, with, you know, couldn't um, have survived without a certain thing, then how could it be here. So, for example, let me use, um, if you have a mousetrap, if you take one part of the mousetrap out and it doesn't work, then, you know, you need every part to get to where it needs to be, okay, to have, to fulfill its purpose. Now, if you've got something like, um, a, they use, intelligent design supporters use a, a little bacterial flagellum. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a bacterial flagellum, but just go with it. This little thing, okay, tiny little thing, um, they believe that actually it couldn't have evolved. Okay, so that along the evolutionary process, um, it would have stopped because it didn't have the right amount of things it needed to keep going. Does that sort of make sense? I'm not sure I'm explaining that very well. But it's too, just go with the fact that it's too complex. If you can find something that's too complex to have evolved, then the intelligent design people are saying, well, there must be some sort of intelligence behind it then to have stepped in. It's like the eye. If you take the human eye, you can definitely see how the eye evolves. Okay? Um, you can see it over, you look at all the different species that we have in the world, and there's all different stages of the eye, and it all works. But some can only see light spots, some can only see blurry, the, we can see everything. So you can really see how the eye can evolve in our world. But if it couldn't have done that, if, there, if it needed one piece that it didn't have along the way, then it wouldn't have been able to get to the site that we have today. And so what they're saying is people who support intelligent design are saying they found things that they think just couldn't have followed the evolutionary process. Now, they have lots of people arguing against them as well, but I'm not going to go into all of that. But that is one thing that supports the fact that there is some sort of intelligent being behind all this, Yeah. Okay, and then finally, there's this thought, which is evolutionary theism. Um, and now you might um, be normally think, you know, or oh, evolution. Well, you know, what is the evolution theory? Or it's not compatible with Christianity. This is really, it is compatible. I want to present to you tonight that it is compatible with Christianity. Um, uh, it's not the extreme evolution which says that Charles Darwin put forward that everything happened by random chance. Okay? It's not as far as going to say that because God is involved in it and it wouldn't have been random. It would have been planned. It would have been a process. It would have been God's doing. So God created everything. Um, he made everything, but he made things to make themselves. Okay, And so this is actually out of all Christianity, so taking everybody into consideration, Catholic, Protestant, all the branches of Protestantism, this is the, m the majority view of Christianity. OK? 
okay? Now, we might have been very used to a creationist view uh, of, taking, of reading Genesis very literally because in the evangelical side of things, in our movement, that's usually been more, more of the thinking. But actually, this is probably the, the largest response in Christianity, where actually evolution is just God's chosen method of bringing life into existence and that he has used that as a process to get to where we are today. But the important thing which makes it different to Darwin is that it's not just random, it is divinely inspired, that God's been part of that process. So he's been involved with creating us as humanity to be set apart from all other species, that we, you know, we are the ones made in the image and likeness of God, that we are set apart in that way. Um, so creation in this way is understood both as an event God created but God continues to create in a process All right. and like I said this, this is the one view that's probably the, the widely held Christian view out of everybody who's in Christianity so I've given you four views turn to the person next to you grab another suite and have a little chat about those four views Okay, off you go, just have a little quick chat and see which one you fit into, probably, if you if you fit into any. Um, I uh, yes, actually, yeah, I'll give them out. Actually, I have. Yes. Yeah, you're one step ahead of me there. Look, I forgot. Okay, listen, folks. Actually, Simon's just reminded me. He said, "Did you have them written down?" I do have them written down here. Um, so, well, not really in those four particular views, but. Um, just have a dis- see if you can just think about like young earth creationism, old earth creationism, intelligent design, and evolutionary theism. Okay, um, and this little spectrum that I'm just going to give you here, just to have a quick look at, is um, I'll just give these out, and you can see at one end is the religious views of creationism, like we just talked about, which would take Genesis literally, would not believe in the evolution theory, um, would not believe in the Big Bang, etc. That's one end of the spectrum. To the other end, which actually denies God altogether, like Richard Dawkins' view at one end. And then in the middle, all the sort of other stuff that I've just been talking about, evolutionary theism um, and intelligent design. And I've even included some little philosophical views there for you as well. So have a little look at this. And just... Have a little discussion. You might fit very neatly into one category and say, yeah, I'm definitely a young earth creationist, definitely older, maybe I'm evolutionary theist. So just have a little think and just talk to the person next to you a moment about that.
will you still love me once I've done this? Okay. Now, John just said about evolution in the species or outside of species. That's the difference between microevolution and macroevolution. Okay, microevolution is evolution within the species, and I don't think any of us could deny that. You just, it's evident, isn't it, that there's, within a species they evolve in the set species. Macroevolution is obviously that species have evolved from a common ancestor. Okay, now, um, when we talk about evolution of humans, for example, and we say, you know, um, we evolved from the ape. Well, we didn't evolve from the ape. So you wouldn't see an ape, half ape, half human, kind of walking around, still evolving. Because all the great apes or anything, just, and our, us as humanity, have um, a common ancestor. So we've, we've evolved from the same ancestor, but we've gone off on a different branch. So when we say we've evolved from apes, it's a little bit misleading, even, you know, for, for, even for evolutionists to, to think like that. It's, it's different to that. We have like a tree of life, as it were. You have a common ancestor, and from that come the branches. Now, let's just take humanity out of it for a moment, because that's a much more controversial matter. But the macroevolution of, of species, evolutionary theism, is saying, yes, that's what, that's what happens. That evolution happens like that, not just within the species. Okay, so it is saying that evolution is a process of all of us coming from like a common ancestor would be, um, would be correct. Okay, now when you throw humanity into there, obviously we start going, oh, hang on a moment, because we are different and we're set apart. And I definitely want to say that, yes, I do, I do think that. I, I personally tend to this idea of evolutionary theism where I would read Genesis in a more symbolic way than a literal way. Um, I would see that it has greater meaning than what it just says to us. Um, and for me, that fits with my thinking. Now, when it comes to humanity, that is a diff different idea because I don't know where I... And I'm just going to be honest with you, I don't know where I sit with that. But what I do definitely know is this, that we are set apart, that... God definitely intervened for humanity, that we are made in the image and likeness of God and we are the only species created in the image and likeness of God. So when evolutionary theism puts this forward its ideas, it's saying that this is the evolutionary process that is, that's happening, but God is divinely intervening and it's divinely directed by him. So that is different to... Evolution within species, yeah. But you can absolutely disagree with me, and I hope that you do. Well, but yeah. One thing for sure. Yeah. Adam and Eve were direct uh, in God's design. They were direct, purely made by His image. I, for myself, am made in my parents' image. Right, so I'm a generated human being. Yeah. I'm not a direct descendant. God himself in that sense. Nice. So you could argue that, you know, evolutionists or theism in it yeah. is that, you know, yes, I'm made in the image of God, but it was a generation image rather than a direct image. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think when the Bible talks about made in the image and likeness of God, it's meaning that we're set apart as a species to be not in the physical image of God at all because God is not like us in a human form. We're not in God's physical image. We're in the image of of the fact that we can have emotions and that we have an intellect and that we reason. We're in his likeness in that way that we can relate to one another rather than we look like God. Okay. Uh, well, not really, necessarily, but could be. It could be both. Okay. Um, so you have some evolutionary theorists would say historically Adam and Eve probably were real historically. At some point. To me, Adam and Eve explain the fall of man. Yeah. So you remove that out of the way, yeah. how does the fall of man come into being? Yeah. Mm. Then what is the point of Jesus dying? Right? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, so that's so such a vital part because if that is removed, then so much of of what you know the Christian yeah. faith is right there on the question. Mm. And I think that's it. And when, if you look at some um, theologians and scientists, they would be on, on that similar vein. So they believe in this, but they would um, hold to the fact that Adam and Eve are still historical somewhere in this line. Uh, um, and, and that makes sense to them. But um, many do believe that actually Adam and Eve maybe weren't historical figures, that they were. They, it is a symbolic story. It's quite a dangerous thing to apply to the Christian faith many ways because you have to take you have to, yes you have to look at the divine human divine humanity in it all that if there is no literal human um, uh, thesis or theism yeah. in it then you're taking out a human uh, created um, part of it because God was so pleased at what he made that he was so pleased mm. again to put two human beings into that goodness so of course Jesus now himself has become a person, a human being. We know that in historical records Jesus Christ exists as a person. Yeah. It's the divine Jesus Christ that many either believe Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So my personal thing is if you take the human element of this evolution of theism, you're in danger of saying that God did not send his own son in his own image in a human Yeah. Form. I don't you might think that. I don't think that's the case. I think because anybody who believes in this, obviously, um, I said right at the start, fundamental to the Christian faith is Jesus and that he was human and divine and was, you know, um, crucified, resurrected. And that is, the, that is the fundamental thing of our Christian faith. I think we have to hold to that. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But the first Adam, if the first Adam wasn't a human and the second Adam was certainly a human, one preceded the other because one failed. So one okay. completed the first failure of the first Adam, so the second Adam became a, a giver of spirit and yeah. life. So they both had to have been compatible in, yeah. in, the God, in the God plan. Absolutely. I think for somebody who's reading it as symbolic, that Adam and Eve weren't necessarily actual historical and, it, and the whole story of the fall and everything is symbolic, mm-hmm. they read it in the sense of this, that... Adam and Eve are representations for humanity. And that's why I said there's this beautiful um, story in creation about what it means to be human. And, and Adam and Eve represent humanity. They represent us. They represent all of us. Yeah. All of us in our sin. All of us in our falling and our failing and our temptation. And we are the first Adam. We, they represent humanity. And so, yeah, Christ had to come as the second Adam. 
um, to to take away our sins and to um, be, you know, the the one that will, um, you know, take the punishment for us. I find it difficult to separate them. And many do. And like I said, it doesn't mean that you hold to this view and therefore you've got to read Adam and Eve and the fall as symbolic. But many people that do um, hold to this view would see it more as symbolic. And I, and I think for me, for this evening, I don't need you, I'm not here to say this is what you have to believe or this is the right thing. What I'm here to do is just to say, actually, you know what, that's okay. Like, if we read Genesis as symbolic and we have a belief in evolutionary theism, that still fits with an idea and belief in God and Jesus. They can be compatible. And I think that's the really important thing in our faith. We might be a whole mixture of diverse beliefs, some young earth creationists, some older, some intelligent design, some this. But what's important, what's the main thing, is that actually those... Different ideas don't stop us from believing in God. And I think in terms of evangelism, that's so important because we're speaking to a world who are scientifically minded. We're speaking to a world who do not believe the Bible. Okay? Um, and when we speak to that world, if we start putting a barrier up to say, well, you know, if you believe this, but you've got, you know, you can't believe in evolution or um, you can't believe in the Big Bang or you have to believe this literally, then that's a barrier straight away to people coming to Christ. And what I think I want us to just take away from tonight is to release us to go, actually, you know what, it doesn't have to be a barrier. It's not a barrier. It's not a barrier to coming to Christ. Um, You can hold a view of evolution and symbolic understanding of of Genesis um, and still be a Christian. And I think for me, that, that is, that's the important thing. Now for us, as Christians, we have to wrestle with these things. We have to. We have to think about it. And, I want, and, to, and to be secure as well in saying, actually, I am going to question this. How do we read this? The Bible is a book of varying genres. Some are poetic, some are literal, some are not. Some are symbolic, some are not. Um, Genesis is open to debate. And people debate whether it's symbolic or whether it's literal. I've given you this. Look, I'm conscious of time ticking away, but I've given you this, and um, because I just want you to get a feel for the science-religion debate that's been rolling through the centuries. And I started there at the beginning, just giving you the Reformation, um, and then. Copernicus, obviously, we know about that in 1543, when the belief was, obviously, um, that, you know, uh, everything, the the earth is at the centre, yeah, Um, and everything goes around the earth. Now, that's in the Bible, you see, that the earth is at the centre, so people believed it, but actually, we know that's not true. Um, We know now, and I think we all believe, that the sun is at the centre, and we all go around the sun, Yeah. I think. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, good. Okay. Um, so Copernicus presented this view that the sun was at the centre and everything went around the sun. And of course, they didn't believe that at the time because the Bible had talked about the earth being at the centre. And so they actually, obviously, the church rejected him. Um, but then there was a revolution and, and we realised 
differently and we, we recognise now science knows that the sun is at the centre. So we had to change our thinking on that. Um, and so you go through, and um, James Usher came in 1950 to date the Bible. Uh, to date the Bible, he took it as all the chronological orders, and that's why we've ended up with a young Earth creationist idea. And I just want us to see in context about this because this was 1600, and you know sometimes we can think, oh, this has been the view forever, but it wasn't the view forever. Right back to our early forefathers of the church, way way back. Um, you know, they weren't necessarily taking everything as literal in the creationist standpoint. It was, it's always been up for debate and it's always been there. Sometimes we can think that, oh, that's always be, it's always been like that and I don't think it has. And as you go and you see Charles Darwin comes along, 1859, The Origins of the Species, and there's that big question, did, did Darwin kill God? And I really want to say to you, no, God, Darwin didn't kill God. He might have killed a particular view that we had of God, um, you don't, don't worry about William Paley, he's a philosopher, but he had a particular view that God was like this designer and, you know, and not evolution. And it might have killed that God, but didn't kill God. We could still believe in God. Um, and so, actually, I ju- this is just get a little bit of a flavour of, really, the creationist idea, the creationism of taking Genesis literally, has really moved more in the 1900s. Um, the 1800s, 1900s, get a lot of um, uh, controversy in America when they banned evolution being te- taught at schools, etc. And then um, the Genesis flood was published in 1961 by Henry Morris. I said to you about that before. And actually that was putting forward and encouraging people to take a literal understanding of Genesis and creationism. Um, and yeah, you just get a bit of a flavour there. And so all that to say, you know, it doesn't, I don't, whatever you think and and believe and and understand by the story, I just think we have to realise that actually there's been decades, hundreds and hundreds of years of thinking about this and what actually, is it symbolic, is it literal, can can evolution fit in with God? And I want to say yes it can, I think it's compatible. Even Darwin himself, look there, put a little quote, um, it seems to me absurd to doubt that a man could be an ardent theist, a believer in God, and an evolutionist. Um, he said, obviously, you could be both. He came away more agnostic in his thinking about God at the end. But that wasn't to do with his evolution theory. That was to do with other stuff in his life um, at the time. So, let's just rock on for a little moment, okay? Um, and uh, I want to just take us quickly, just not for long, but just to the Big Bang, okay? Because sometimes, obviously, we have evolution and we have the Big Bang as our two scientific theories um, uh, that, can be, that can seem to be at loggerheads with, cre- with Christianity. It's only at loggerheads with a creationist view. Um, and um, I want to introduce you to this thing called the anthropic principle. And again, and just go back to Clive, because this is what you were saying before, really. Um, and I think this really backs up the fact that our universe needs some sort of intelligence behind it. Okay, um, and we would obviously say God. But the anthropical principle is basically this. Um, let me just read this. You cannot, if you want to fulfill the role of creator, simply bring into being more or less any old world and just wait a few billion years for something interesting to happen. The interplay of chance and necessity requires the necessity to have a very special form, if anything worthy by our standards, to be called life is to emerge. It is this surprising conclusion that has been called the anthropic principle. And it talks about this idea that it just, you can't have left it to chance to create such a finely tuned universe. Um, 
because you can, like it says there, whack the balls on a billiard table for a long time. Um, you're never going to get anything interesting. It requires some very special conditions. And I think we would agree that the universe has required some special conditions for it to come. And, you know, what science often says sometimes, I suppose, it's just chance. We would perhaps want to argue that it's not just chance, that um, there's been an intelligence behind it, and it's called this. It's our finely tuned universe. It's called the anthropic principle. Um, and I'll just go through some really quick things. You know, if the Earth's atmosphere, if things were just slightly different, we wouldn't be able to be here. Okay, just, just like one little thing out of, out of kilter. Um, so too much of just one of the many gases which make up our atmosphere, our planet would suffer runaway greenhouse effects. So there's Earth's atmosphere, Earth's magnetic field. Now I know nothing about this really, but if it was a bit weaker or whatever, we, you know, we wouldn't be able to be here. Um, the Earth's place in the solar system, just a little bit, just a millimetre closer to the sun, a little bit further away. Again, we're just at the right place for life to be created. Um, the colour of the sun, if it was different, it would be a problem for photosynthesis, so it's just the right thing, right conditions. Okay, now, lots of people, if we had someone that was <laughs> against uh, God, they could have a lot of arguments against that, but uh, we haven't got time to go into that. But I think the anthropic principle is a good argument to say, look, we, need a fi- we have got a finely tuned universe, and it probably had an intelligence behind it. Um, now, the Big Bang Theory, I don't know how many of you knew this, but it was put forward by a Catholic priest, Okay? So it's not something that was put forward by someone who didn't believe in God. It was put forward by someone who did believe in God in 1927. And um, I just think that's fantastic. Uh, before that, the idea in science was that it was called the steady state theory. And the steady state theory basically said this, that the universe had always existed. It would always been there. So here Lemaitre comes in 1927 and says, actually, I don't think that's the case. I think there was a starting point to the universe. And that idea upset a lot of scientists. So much so that this guy, Fred Hoyle, actually, it was a derogatory term. He called it the Big Bang Theory as a criticism of this theory. They didn't like it. And they thought, actually, this theory is going to give the Christians um, a weight to their, their idea that you know God created it at a moment. Um, and, and yet, Big Bang Theory stuck around. Um, and that's what the scientific theory generally is. Most scientists today would say that the universe did have a starting point, that there was a time when there was nothing, and then there was something, rather than the universe always existing. Okay? Which kind of makes sense. So the Big Bang Theory was put forward by, um, by a Christian. Um, yeah, and I, I just put there... So, around 13.7 billion years ago, it's estimated that the Big Bang happened. Okay? So, I think the Big Bang really fits into whatever view you have, whether you're a young Earth creationist, older evolutionist. I think it can fit in with that in the sense that, yeah, the universe had a starting point and God was behind it. Yeah? Um, and it didn't just happen on its own accord, but God was there. So, you know, it's just a term, isn't it, for the starting of the universe? Big Bang Theory. Um, so I think we can fit that in to our understanding, um, because but we maybe just want to say that God was behind that um, Big Bang Theory. One of the um, things with this is that 
Um, if we say to somebody, well, we think God started the Big Bang, um, that's because, you know, obviously we believe in a God, but also maybe on the, on the essence that you can't get something from nothing. Um, if you've got nothing, how do you get something? Okay. Um, now, scientists might say there's matter that can pop into existence. Okay. Um, but we might want to say there had to be like a first cause and we would say that was God. God is the first cause. It's called the cosmological argument. There's lots of arguments for God's existence. Cosmological is one of them. Cosmos meaning the universe. Logos meaning study. So study of the universe. And it says the first cause, that was God, and God brought the Big Bang into place. And that's why we've got something rather than nothing. Yeah? But, of course, if, someone, if you were talking to someone about that, they might ask these two questions. Why not infinite regression and who caused God? <laughs> yeah? And I think we need something intelligent to say. So, infinite regression means you go back forever, don't you? Why is there not just a series of causes that go back and back and back and back and back? So, like, there doesn't have to be a first cause. You just keep going back in causes. But then, can that be possible? Can you have infinite regression? Surely there has to be a starting point. Yeah? Um, the only thing, oh, I don't want to get too technical, but the, the only thing that um, can be, in, I think, that can go infinitely into regress is potential infinite, and that's numbers. That's the only thing that really could go on forever, couldn't it? Or back forever. Numbers could keep, like, because you can always add. But anything else in our world, you can't really keep going back and back and back with causes, because... Well, it just doesn't seem to make sense, does it? You need like a starting point. And so I think there probably is a starting point and I would want to suggest it was, it was the Big Bang and then obviously I want to suggest that was God. Um, and who caused God? That's a good question, isn't it? Because if you're trying to say, well, God was the first cause because everything needs a cause, someone would go to you, um, okay, if everything needs a cause, what caused God? But, hey. Yeah, that's what, that's what they would say. Where did God come from? And I think we can... I, my response to that would be, well, God is, um, doesn't need a cause. God is causeless, because God has always been. Okay? God is what, what, what we um, class as having necessary existence. God is necessarily existent, meaning God cannot not exist. God is not dependent on anything for his existence. He's always been there. Um, whereas we are dependent on something else for our existence, aren't we? And everything you look around in this room is dependent on something else. It doesn't just pop in. It's like dependent on something for its existence. And that's what we call contingent things. They go into existence, they come out of existence. But God would be that one thing that has necessary existence, that cannot not exist. And other people would go, oh, okay, yeah, well, well, why is God that thing then? Why not something else? Oh, I don't think anything else really could be. Because it'd have to be something supernatural, wouldn't it? Really, I think, for it to have a necessary existence, sort of always been there. I don't know. I just find it hard to get my head around something being there all the time, some sort of matter, because for me it needs a cause. Whereas God could be that one thing that doesn't need a cause. Yeah? Because he's supernatural. And he's like, he is everything. He is the ground of all being. Within him we have everything. He is everything. He is being itself. So I think we can answer that in that way, that God's in a special category. Um, 
Right, could I just show this final little clip and then I'll wrap up. Okay, so these are some of my great heroes um, and they are, it's only like a 10 minute clip and they are just sharing their ideas about creation and the origins of life um, and just explaining some things to us. Like I said, you don't have to agree with them and you go away this evening not agreeing with me and not agreeing with each other, but I think, like I said, it's just for us to start thinking about these things. Thanks, that's be great. The Christian Church has always wrestled with the interpretation of Scripture, realizing both how important it is and also sometimes how difficult it is to get it right. And certainly the opening chapters of Genesis have been a topic of much debate throughout Christian history. The Bible is very important to me, but it's very important to recognize the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library. It has all sorts of different kinds of writing in it. It has history, it has stories, it has poetry, it has prose. When we read Genesis 1, we have to figure out, what am I reading? Am I reading a divinely dictated textbook to save me the trouble of doing science? Or am I reading something, in fact, more interesting and profound than that? We have to approach Genesis 1 for what it is. It's an ancient document. It's not a document that was written to us. Uh, we believe the Bible is written for us like it's for everyone of all times and places because it's God's Word. But it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or our culture in view. It's not about the authority of Scripture, it's about the interpretation of Scripture. What method of interpretation do I use in the case of each individual passage? Biblical scholars urge people to take a literal, plain reading of the text. But I think in the controversy between theology and science, literal is often used to mean scientific. As if it's scientific, and that's a whole different story. We're inclined by our culture uh, to think of the creation narrative as an account of material origins because we think about the world in material terms. For us, that's kind of what's important about origins. People come to scripture thinking that they need to integrate it with science and so they want to either read science out of the Bible or they want to read science into the Bible. That's not the way to do it because inevitably you end up making the text say things that it never meant to the ancient audience. We are importing meaning into the text. We are bringing our own presuppositions and assumptions into a text and reading it in light of that as if it were in the text. Now there's a sense in which we all inevitably do that, but there is also a sense in which we need to be aware when the times when we do that are damaging to the reading of the text. When I was a kid and a film industry was still relatively new, it was possible to depict people from two centuries ago as modern Americans dressed up in togas. As the film industry has gotten more sophisticated, they've gotten better and better at creating human figures that actually look and behave and think as they probably would have in the past. So we Bible readers ought to be equally sophisticated and recognize that someone who was writing 3,000 years ago, which is very hard to imagine, these people must have been very different from us with very different concerns. They certainly had very, very different understandings about how material things worked. One of the benefits of understanding the historical circumstances of the Bible is we're reminded of how incredibly old this literature is. Let's understand it in view of 
what we could even remotely expect of the biblical writers to say. We can understand what our own creation stories are saying better if we know what the creation myths were that were known at the times that those stories were written. For instance, to realize that a lot of the Genesis stories were written as a countermeasure against the other cultures' creation stories. That throws an immense amount of light on what parts of the story we're supposed to be paying attention to. The Gilgamesh epic, for example, has a flood narrative and so forth, and so it wants to reflect creatively and theologically in light of those creation myths. So it's going to be something recognizable. Genesis 1 shares theological vocabulary with the other stories. It just sort of takes things and turns it on its head. If one creation myth talks about the earth being created as a result of the battle between gods, we know to look in our creation stories to say, wait a minute, is, is violence intrinsic to the very creation of our universe? And we find it very clearly written that, that no, it's not. It's Israel's declaration that Yahweh is worthy of worship. It's a potent and counterintuitive theological statement in the ancient world where people say, that's totally different from anything we've ever seen. Historians in the ancient world weren't so concerned with minute, literal accuracy as we are today. People wrote not to give you a sort of factual, journalistic account of what's going on, but to tell you the significance of what was happening. And so what we see is that there are these really interesting structures in the Genesis text which suggest that it's not describing the creation process as this is the order in which it happened. Rather, it's taking that story and emphasizing theological points. It talks about days. There's morning, there is evening. But the sun and the moon are not created until the fourth day. So why, for example, did the writer of Genesis put the sun and the moon on the fourth day? It's a very strange thing to do. And it's not as if it's only moderns who realize, oh dear, something is wrong. People at any time of history would have realized that was an, an unusual way of writing down a journalistic account. And of course the reason, most likely, is that people of that day worshipped the sun and the moon. And the Israelites were always being drawn away that way and their people around them were doing that. And so what the writer was saying is, no, I'm going to demote these things to the fourth day. They're not the first thing to be created. They're something that's created somewhat later. This is simply the sort of language that people use to refer to concrete events, but to invest those events with their theological significance. We're well aware that people have to translate the language for us. We forget that people have to translate the culture for us. And therefore, if we want to get the best benefit from the communication, we need to try to enter their world, hear it as the audience would have heard it, as the author would have meant it, and to, to read it in those terms. which is there in scripture between heaven and earth but the thing about heaven and earth is that they're supposed to overlap and have an interesting interlocking interplay with one another they are never supposed to be far apart in the ancient world they didn't have a line between supernatural and natural God was in everything 
You couldn't talk about God intervening because you can't intervene in something that you're doing. And to them, God was doing it all. That kind of functional aspect, that was very important to them. In Genesis, God makes heavens and earth, and it appears that humans are in the world, but God is around as well because the heavens and earth have not split apart. The temple and the cosmos were kind of all blended into one. Uh, if we used a modern metaphor, it'd almost be like the temple was the Oval Office. It's kind of where all the business is done, where the work is, is run. It's the hub of, of activity and of, of control. And when deity took up his rest in the temple, it wasn't for leisure or relaxation. It was to settle down to the work now that everything's set up and ready to go. Telling a story about somebody who constructs something in six days it's a temple story. It's about um, God making a place for himself to dwell. And this is heaven and earth. And what you do with that is the last thing is you put an image of the God into this temple. And suddenly, Genesis 1, instead of it being were there six days or were there five or were there seven or were there 24 hours, it's actually about when the good creator God made the world, he made heaven and earth as the space in which he himself was going to dwell and putting humans into that construct as a way of both reflecting his own love into the world and drawing out the praise and glory from the world back to himself. And that's the literal meaning of Genesis. To flatten that out into, this is simply telling us that the world was made in six days, is, is almost perversely to avoid the real thrust of the narrative. If this is an inspired book, Okay. If this really is you know, something that, where God is revealing and can speak through it, it shouldn't surprise us that we find multiple layers of depth. Genesis is one of those books, like a Shakespeare play or like a Beethoven symphony or something, where you can describe what it sort of literally says. Here's a Beethoven symphony, here are the notes, da, 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 da. And you think, well, um, that doesn't actually catch what's going on in this. And you want to use bigger language about the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. This is an amazing statement about the, the, the power of empire and the fate of man and goodness knows what. Um, you've still got to play the notes. Genesis for all it's worth and to say either history or myth is a way of saying I'm not going to study this text for all it's worth I'm just going to flatten it out so that it conforms to the cultural questions that my culture today is telling me to ask and I think that's a form of actually being unfaithful to the text itself the account in Genesis 1 is not intended to be an account of material origins if that's so the Bible has no narrative of material origins. And if that's so, then we don't have to defend the Bible's narrative of material origins against a, a scientific narrative because the Bible doesn't offer one. We can let the text be what it is 
and take it for what it is. That's the most literal reading that you could have. Um, that's a little glimpse, like just 10 minutes there, about um, some views. And I think for me, the important thing there is that actually, um, whatever we read, whether we read it as, as, as actual days or we don't or whatever, it's seeing and, and realizing the, the beauty of that text and, and what it means to all of us is this idea that, yeah, God was creator, however that was, whatever we believe that to be, God was creator, and that God has set us apart and I think we agree on that and that you know we are in the image and likeness of God and that there was a sense of you know us needing to be rescued and needing a second Adam and needing a saviour because we all fall and we all fail and we all sin in some way Um, and I think that's the the important thing Um, but you know I I put up there it's always going to be different views but there is the extremes of just religion, just science, but there is a compatibility. And I think, if anything, I want us to conclude with this. I think that's, that's you know, what I'm really passionate about. Obviously, I am passionate about the, what we think and, and what we make of the scriptures, um, because I love that. But I think this is the important thing, which I was saying before, is that actually, you know, our main mission is evangelism. Our main mission is about seeing salvation in people's lives and I know that my um, group of friends, if I said to them well, to be a Christian you can't hold to this idea then they wouldn't entertain the Christian faith because the, the idea of evolution and the Big Bang and scientific theories is what they believe and I don't want to put up a barrier and I don't think we need to so whether whatever you think about anything, I just think we can be confident to say it doesn't have to be a barrier because there, is a, there can be a compatibility between the two, whether you agree or not, but I think there can be. And so um, that's why I just put that up there. Um, Timothy Keller's an excellent theologian, um, but he put this, the inquirer does not need to accept any of these positions in order to embrace the Christian faith. Yeah, there's only what there's the fundamental thing of the Christian faith, and everything else is sort of secondary to that. And if we're going to speak to people about the Christian message, then I think for us it's really important that um, that we don't put any you know anything in the way to get to that. And so I think that's the thing I would leave you with, as well as a whole head full, I hope, of thoughts and ideas. And I hope I haven't gone. Well, I don't know. You might it might be good to be confused at times, um, but to have our thoughts provoked and, and challenged, and actually that just helps us to firm up our ideas. But I think if anything, then I'd like us to be left with this. Um, okay, shall we pray together? Father God, I thank you. Um, I thank you for your word, Lord, and I thank you for that we have it. Um, and I thank you that we can look at it and, and just um, spend time thinking about the meaning behind um, your words, that they are relevant for us today as they ever were. And um, Father, I, I thank you that you are the creator Amen. and that you are the one that's in control Amen. and that you have um, produced this world for our good. And, for, and, and you have purposed it for us and that you want a relationship with us and we thank you for that. And, and what creation shows us is that, yeah, you know, we, have, we do things wrong and we, we walk away from you and we disobey and we're tempted and all those things, but Lord, you have us back. 
and that you restore us and that you redeem us and that you forgive us. Um, And that was part of your plan. I thank you that we are made in your image and likeness and that you are for us and that you love us. Um, And Lord, I thank you that that is the main important thing. And we praise you and worship you for that, Lord. So I just pray a blessing on everybody here this evening and upon this church and upon our family here. In your mighty name. I'm going to stop there, but if you have any other questions, please do. But I'm conscious that it is half past now, so um, I want to end. And please do eat up the chocolates that are left on your table. This is a free download from Delancey Elam Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30am in the Delancey Elam Church building at LeBanks St. Sampson's in the Channel Island of Guernsey. To contact us or find out more information about us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk.